0: today. So this is Luke 29 to 18. Luke 29 to 18. And just keep this phrase in mind even as we uh, read through the passage and then begin to get into this. God God made everything. Uh, God owns everything. God rules over everything. And that is a daily battle for every one of us to accept, believe, and live out. Amen? So let's read this together. Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son, perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, It will crush him. Well, we have looked at a number of other parables in the scriptures uh, through our study of the gospel of Luke, and I've made the point, standard interpretation uh, policy, if you will, around parables is that we see just the characters as carrying a message. So you look at each of the main characters of a parable, and each of those characters will kind of drive home a point that Jesus wants us to get. We've um, resisted the urge that some people do to actually look at all the details of the parable and make all of that something, because then it would leap away from being a parable to being allegory. In fact, as we come to this particular parable, this one actually is an allegorical parable in the sense that all of the characters represent something and have a lesson for us, but so do many of the details of the parable itself. And so let me put this up on, a sc- on the screen so that we can see exactly what we're talking about here as we move through this. Really, five essential characters all representing something and four essential details. Uh, the man in the parable, the vineyard owner is God. The tenants are tenant farmers or vine dressers. They are Israel's leaders whom Jesus is addressing. The three servants who are sent are the prophets of God. Uh, The beloved son in the story is Jesus Christ, and the others will come to find out uh, who receive the vineyard are the Gentiles or the church. We don't actually find that out in this passage, but we find it out through the balance of the New Testament. And then concerning the details of, of the parable, what's going on in it? Uh, The vineyard is Israel, Jerusalem, the temple. We'll mind down on that a little bit. Uh, The fact that the owner went into another country for a long while. This is the period of history from the creation or the fall all the way through the Old Testament era, uh, the era prior to the Messiah coming. The mistreatment of the servants is the abuse of the prophets and the killing of the son, of course. Not hard to see that that's the rejection and crucifixion of Christ himself, the Messiah. And so you can see all of the various elements and characters and how they all fit and what Jesus is trying to say through this whole thing. And so the outline that we're gonna work through and the the point of this parable can be stated really, it can be stated in a single sentence that will explain the entirety of this parable. And it's a single sentence, it's a long sentence, but I have vetted this through our uh, local grammarian, we have a grammar cop on staff, Pastor Dan, He he affirms all things. And when I wrote this, the only error he could find was that I didn't have an Oxford comma, whatever the heck that is. I didn't have that in here, and we added that in, and it was perfect. So (laughs) this is a grammatically correct single long sentence that describes the entirety of this allegorical parable. Got it? All right, here we go. I must acknowledge that God made, owns, and rules over all and has entrusted what he made to us, requiring submission to his word and his will and to his beloved son, Jesus Christ, whom I must accept as my Lord and savior in order to receive the inheritance of his kingdom rather than the crushing judgment that awaits those who reject him. Amen. All right, there you go, thanks. Was that for the grammar part or for the truth of it? (laughs) I'm not not sure. Maybe both. So now we're going to take that statement, which describes the whole thing, and break that down into seven phrases and look at that. And so I must acknowledge that God made, owns, and rules uh, overall. and we've talked about authority in the last several messages. In fact, if you go back just kind of like a few pages or a page even in, in the gospel here, and what we've been seeing is Jesus entered Jerusalem. remember he entered the city and he wept over it because of their spiritual state and because He knew they were going to reject Him. And the whole thing was going to come down to a matter of authority. He entered into the temple. you remember he cleansed out the money changers and, and all the corruption that had consumed the temple. And by by doing so, he was really establishing his authority over the temple and challenging the authority of the temple leaders. So the temple leaders send a delegation to Jesus to ask him the question. And we looked at this in the last message. By whose authority are you doing these things? What's your authority for the things you've been saying and the things that you have been doing? And, um, and, and so, and he does, so the, he, they asked this question. And then as per Jesus' standard operating procedure, he doesn't quite answer the question, but he actually answers it with a question. Again, this was all last week, a question of his own, which they then don't answer. And so he says to them, this is verse 8, um, then neither am I going to answer you, your question. And then in verse 9, the passage we're looking at today, he does actually answer them. Okay, He answers them, but he answers them with this allegory, with this parable. And he began to tell the people a parable, verse 9, a man planted a vineyard. Now, the thing we're going after is this acknowledgement that we have to make that God made everything, owns everything, and rules over everything. And the vineyard here, the vineyard owner made the vineyard. It's his vineyard. He owns the vineyard. He rules over the vineyard. Now, we said that this vineyard is Israel or more specifically Jerusalem, the city that's the focal point for everything, or it could be the temple itself. And in fact, that vineyards were uh, or grapevines were the symbol of Israel was pretty common in the, in the mind of the Jewish people. In fact, we have a picture here to show you that the entrance to the temple itself, this model shows us that around the entrance, around the principal gate entering into the, to the temple were all these Grapevines all surrounding because Israel saw themselves as the vineyard of God. And um, we understand that the temple was the focal point for worship for the people. It was the focal point of where God's glory was resident. It was the focal point for where they met with God and worshiped him and reconciled themselves to him through their sacrificial system. God planted this vineyard Israel. God owned the vineyard of Israel. The temple, the capital city were all His, and He ruled over it. And though we understand now, looking back on the history of it and how God worked, that God has now set Israel aside for a season, that all of this that we're talking about is no less true about the church of Jesus Christ. That God made this, that God owns this, that God rules over this. That the principles we're talking about here are also no less true for me as an individual believer, that God made me, that God owns me, that God rules over me. Whether you like that, whether you agree with it, whether you submit to his rule or not, And, 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 and please understand that if we were to take this first step of acknowledging these things before the Lord, that God stands ready to unleash incredible blessing on our life as a result of this acknowledgement. Because there's such a blessing attached to getting under the authority, submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ. So that's the starting point. Once that's established, I also understand that God has entrusted what he made. He made everything. He's entrusted what he made to us. So in terms of the creation, God made everything. Going all the way back, God made everything. And then the text tells us in Genesis that he gave dominion of the creation to humanity. He gave us stewardship or management of it. He told us to subdue the creation and rule over it. Then he took Abraham, calling him out of his own country and bringing him to the promised land, telling him he was going to make a great nation from him. And his son Isaac and his son Jacob became this great nation. God entrusted to Israel the name of Yahweh and the message that would go out to the world, and it would be through this nation that God would bring the Savior of the world, that God would offer to the world salvation. He gave them a mission and a mandate. And with the privilege and blessing of being in a relationship with God, we would understand again the privileges that God has given to us, the offer that he's made to us, the offer that many of us here have accepted from him, that that also brings with it the responsibility to carry out his mission in this world and to live holy lives. To live for him, to to take what he's given to us and, and, and be entrusted with that so we don't live for ourselves once we give our lives to Jesus Christ. The people of God are are not our property. The church is not uh, mine to do with as I please. He made it. He owns it. He rules over it. It's merely entrusted to me to properly uh, steward that for his glory. So again, all of this is coming. Verse 9, now partway through, he led it out to tenants. He took this, this vineyard and he led it out to Israel. And then he went into another country for a long while. And that long while, as I said, is that long period of time from the creation. Really, let's say from the fall of man when sin entered the world until the period of time when Jesus was born and the advent began. Up until the fall, of course, Jesus walked in the garden with the man and the woman that he had created. They had a perfect face-to-face relationship, the thing that we want to get back to. And so really, this going away into another country for a long while started at the point that they fell and was part of the curse. Now, the thing that rings out to me as I think about being entrusted with something from God and thinking about him going away, having been entrusted with that, and he's away for a long while, the the word that comes to mind is God's abundant patience with us, given the fact that what we've been entrusted with, we're all often not faithful with. And how often we face temptation and then give in to that temptation and how often we rebel against him and we resist his will in our lives. And I think about God's patience and how he's working out his plan and this is why it's such a long while That he's delaying so that more will know and more will repent and we will become more holy and more faithful with the things that he's given to us. He went for a long while, he didn't go forever. Israel knew it and we know it. He's gonna come back and claim what's his. I think about God's patience and how many people are just grateful for God's patience in their lives. mean, you grateful for that? I got another birthday coming up and I think it's less a celebration of how awesome I am for living so long. And it's more like, wow, I made it to another year without God wiping me out. It's a, it's a, it's another one year marker of God's incredible patience to me. Don't you feel that way? With all the ways I continue to sin and all the darkness that's still in my heart and all the ways I continue to disappoint Him and not be faithful to Him. A birthday is really just, I made it another year without the discipline of God in my life, without His judgment falling down on me. Another year of just receiving abundant grace and mercy from a God, uh, things I do not deserve. That's what birthdays are about. So patient with us, and the vineyard is ours now. It's ours. God's entrusted it to us. So, what are we going to do with that? Well, ultimately, we can see this next. All of this is requiring submission to His Word and His will. So, we know that God's gone away for a long period of time, He's going to come back, He's going to claim what's His. Over the course of events, verses 10 through 12 describe that when the time came, not for him to return, but just to kind of check in with his people, he sent a servant to the tenants. And this whole thing, I won't go through it all again, but three cycles of sending a servant to kind of check on things and and, and receive some of the bounty, some of the crop, from the vineyard, and three times the servants are beaten. It, it gets increasingly intense, in fact, the beatings and the mistreatment of these servants. These servants, we said, represent the prophets of God who had been sent repeatedly to Israel to warn them, to, to bring them out of the rebellions, to obey and serve their God, to get under his, his word and his, and his will. And so we, we have these prophets... And, and, and we get a mistaken notion of who the prophets are. So bringing some clarity to that can be helpful to us. The prophet, um, we often think of as being a, um, a foreteller of the future. This isn't original with me, but I've said it before. Um, uh, prophets can both foretell the future and foretell the truth. The vast majority of prophets were not into the foretelling of the future, but the vast majority were about foretelling the truth. There were actually many more prophets than the one that we have, ones that we have in the Old Testament. Who are let's just call them the named prophets, as opposed to the hundreds and maybe even thousands of unnamed prophets who plied their trade in Israel and ancient Israel. Who, for the most part, were not foretelling the future, but were just forthtelling the truth that applied in the immediate. Uh, these. Um, These named prophets, if you could compare it today, these named prophets are more like the guys today who are publishing books, who are on the radio, who are on television, who get to speak at all the conferences. They're the the pastors and and authors and preachers that we all know. All the unnamed prophets who are forth telling the truth are all the Joe (laughs) preachers like me, the guys no one knows except the people who are in your own local congregation, Who have the task week after week of simply getting the Bible open and preaching forth telling of the truth. And whatever it was, whatever was going on here, the people weren't listening, they weren't submitting themselves to His Word and His will. They weren't listening to the preachers who were proclaiming this truth to them on a a regular basis, reminding them of what God had said about what it meant to be faithful to Him. They mistreated them, they beat them, they threw them out. They persecuted the prophets and ignored the messages of the preachers. They didn't pay any attention to the Word of God or make any attempt to obey His will. And in fact, the, the, kind of the period at the end of the sentence prior to the exile of Israel in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, this is what we read. Just before Judah, Jerusalem is defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, just before Judah is carried off into exile in Babylon, this commentary is made. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers. He sent prophets. He sent preachers. Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He was patient. He was giving them lots of opportunity. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. I find a phrase like that to be alarming That we could get to a place where there's no remedy, where the patience of God has been exhausted, where there's no more grace and no more mercy. I mean, I I think we have it in our minds. We live in a culture of procrastinators. We procrastinate on everything, including what is spiritually good and right for us. We, we always think, you know what? I'm going to have a chance to repent of that later. That I'm going to continue to cherish this sin in my heart because it's too hard to deal with. I, frankly, like it too much. And since God is a God of mercy and of grace and he's so patient, I'm just going to play on that and I don't need to deal with that sin today. Only listen, there comes a time when there's no remedy. We think we're going to have a chance to repent later. We're going to think we're going to have a chance to serve later. You know what? I just, this season of my life, it's just so difficult. I don't have the time. I just have so much going on. I don't have, you know, I can't serve right now. But then there comes a time when there's no more serving. I, I'm going I'm to be obedient later. I'm going to give later. Right now, so many pressures financially in my life. I don't think I can carve anything out for the work of the Lord. But then there comes a time when there's no more giving to be done. I'm going to get baptized later. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it for months. I've been thinking about it for years. I know I ought to do it. I've heard the scripture. I've heard every message. I know what the Bible says. I'm just not going to do it right now. Then there's going to be a time when you can't do it. We lie to ourselves. There's coming a time when there's no remedy for your sin, for your rebellion, for your refusal to hear the word of God and do it. I mean, preachers are preaching all over the country today. All around the world on this weekend. Preachers will be delivering messages. There has never been a time in human history when more preaching is available to more people than right now. We're going to take these messages. We're going to put an audio podcast up through iTunes. We're going to, we're going to post the video online, and, and, and people are going to watch that. and Listen, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of preachers are going to do the exact same thing we're going to do, and they're going to post their messages online. And if you, could, you could spend an entire week just watching sermon after sermon after sermon and never even come close to exhausting the amount of preaching that's available for you to listen to and watch this week. So available to us. And yet in North America, aside from the few people who will put themselves in a room like this and hear the preaching of God's word, for the most part, we live in a culture that could be described as just having wholesale ambivalence toward the preaching of God's word. They don't care. I mean, there was a time, and, and, and I'm, I'm old enough to remember a time when pastors, reverends were, 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 uh, were esteemed members of the communities they lived in, and now, listen, honestly, we're just weirdos, aren't we? We're weirdos, the weirdos up front preaching and the weirdos who go to listen to them. I didn't want to be the only one. <laughs> I mean, who wants to be preaching? The concept of preaching is so foreign to a society that considers truth to be relative or personal. Adult attention spans, let's talk about that. We have such short attention spans. You don't need to do a scientific study on this. What's the span of time between commercials and a sitcom? That's your attention span at most. We can't sit for 45 minutes and and listen to the preaching of God's Word. It doesn't even make sense. The messengers of God today are considered quaint novelties of a bygone era, foolish in a modern and sophisticated time. And so few heed the word. Most are unwilling to repent or agree with God and turn from their sin to his way. Most are not looking to change. The servants of God today who bring the message of God's word, his prophets today, they're at least not in our context, are not beaten in many parts of the world. They still are, of course, but they're certainly not accepted, not listened to, not responded to in any great measure in our culture. Few take it seriously, let alone submit to his word and his will. And for sure, that's a challenge in terms of the culture that we live in. And yet, if we want the world outside of these walls, in the city of Barry, in the Simcoe of County, which is our immediate area where we all live and the mission that God has given to us, if we want them to be serious about God's word, listen. Ready for the lesson? We've got to be serious about God's word right in here. I mean, I'm I'm talking about beyond, like, I went to church, and I brought my Bible, and I opened it up, and he preached for 45 minutes, and I heard it all, and I took notes, and I went to small group, and we talked about it, closed the Bible till next week. That is of no profit. How is it changing you? The world's not impressed that you come here for 45 minutes to listen to a sermon. They're not impressed by that. They think that's weird. What's going to get their attention is when they see men and women and boys and girls and young people who are fired up about the Word of God and whose lives are being transformed by it. When they see the change in you, they'll be drawn. When you submit to His Word and His will, that will capture the attention of the world. That's what's going to make the difference. And not only submission to his word and his will, but also, notice this next, to his beloved son, Jesus Christ. It's all tied in together, okay? Not really separate things. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard, God, said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had been telling them that he's the one. We've seen this in Luke's gospel throughout all of this time that we've been studying it. He keeps pointing in multiple different ways through the things he was saying and the things that he was doing and the person that he was. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. And in the parable, he, he uses this. The vineyard owner says, I'm going to send not just my son, I'm going to send my, what does it say? My beloved son, twice before in Luke's gospel, we've heard this exact phrasing. At his baptism, the voice cries out from heaven, this is my beloved son. At the transfiguration, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. The disciples would have heard this in the parable from the mouth of the vineyard owner, and they would have known exactly what he was saying. It was a clue word. Everything points to Jesus. He's the whole story. He's the one to whom we must submit our lives. Everything points to him. And I must, see this next, I must accept him as my Lord and Savior. Now we're going to see this very positive appeal. I'm going to submit to him as my Lord and Savior. But we're going to see it through a very negative illustration in the parable. Those who actually do not accept him. Verses 14 and 15. But when the tenants, these tenant farmers, these leaders of Israel, again, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Now they're making an assumption in this moment that because they see the heir coming and not the owner himself, they're assuming dad's dead. The son's coming to claim the inheritance. So in their minds, they're going to do some logical concluding here about how this is going to play out. This is the heir. They knew exactly who he was, just as the leaders of Israel knew that the one they had in front of them was the Messiah. so they say with glee to one another, let's kill him. And if we kill him, because in our minds, we've concluded dad's already dead, then the vineyard is going to be ours. The inheritance may be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. We won't have to worry about this anymore. The owner is dead. The heir is dead. The land is ours. We can now run this whole operation the way we want to run it. Remember, these are the temple leaders and they're thinking the temple's our business. This is our gig. And we're not too happy about the fact that he just came in a day or two ago and he cleaned out all the money changers and he's exercising his authority over it. That's not his operation, it's ours. We're going to run this the way we want to run it. So let's kill him. The inheritance is ours. They threw him out, they killed him. One commentator said about this, and I just like the way this is expressed, so let's work through this for a moment. The leaders perceive that the parable is about them. And verse 19, by the way, goes exactly there. We'll look at that next week. The leaders perceive that the parable is about them, but they do not hear hear the warning of God's judgment. Pause there for a second. Just pause there. That's some of you in this room right now. You're, you, you hear the warning. You, you hear what Jesus is saying. You're understanding all of it, but you're not willing to heed the warning. You're not willing to say that it actually applies to you. You think somehow you're immune to all of this. These warnings are for you, for every person in this room. The judgments are hanging over the heads of those who have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Back to the quote, the leaders perceive that the parable is about them, but they do not hear the warning of God's judgment. Consequently, the parable only increases their resolve to kill him. So they're thinking in their mind, we need Jesus out of our lives and then we can get everything back to normal. Consequently, the parable only increases their resolve to kill him, fulfilling the plot of the parable. By destroying the son, they unwittingly destroy themselves. In simple terms, If you're sitting here today and you have not yet given your life to Jesus Christ, when you dismiss and reject Jesus, listen, he dismisses and rejects you. By killing Jesus, they actually killed themselves. The parable actually ends right there if you're interested in marking such things in your Bible, but partway through verse 15 right after the phrase, and killed him. That's the end of the parable. And Jesus moves into an explanation of it uh, right in that moment. And um, he asks the people a rhetorical question at the end of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And then he answers the question immediately in verse 16. He will come and destroy those tenants. Now, how many of you would, would just think right now in this moment that language sounds rather harsh. And how many of us would just say, in fact, now this is Jesus speaking these words. How many of us would even just confess that we're a little uncomfortable with Jesus speaking in such a manner? That these who reject Jesus, he will reject and, and destroy, it says. We're... we're, we're We're way more, I mean, this isn't exactly Jesus meek and mild, is it? I mean, that's the Jesus that people prefer. That's the Jesus people don't even mind talking about outside of these walls, as long as he's a wonderful example of nice things, of love and of comfort and of mercy. Then let's talk about that, Jesus. But no one wants to talk about Jesus saying words like this. And we, we live in a culture where people get to get things the way they want them. Tim Hortons is the classic example of you get it the way you want it. Right? I went to Tim Hortons a couple nights ago. I was in Charlottetown with some people. And one of the guys that was in the car with us, he ordered a... I didn't even know this existed. He, at the window, he ordered a 4 by 4 I've heard of the double-double. I've heard of the triple-triple. Has anybody ever heard of the 4x4 before? You have? Do you drink a 4x4? Because I can get an elder to meet with you after. Um, It's okay, Melissa. We love you. Um, The 4x4. This was a modified 4x4, so it sounds disgusting anyways. This is the way he ordered it. Could I have a large decaf with 4 cream and 4 splenda? I always thought people from Alberta were tough until that very moment. I mean, that's just a disgusting beverage, but we, 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 how do you take your Jesus? How do you take your Jesus? I take him Jesus meek and mild. No, I take my Jesus holy and judging I mean, we don't get to pick this. We don't get to roll up to the window and get the Jesus we want. We we take the Jesus that's given to us. We take the Jesus who is both meek and mild and filled with compassion, but who also says there comes a point at which there's no remedy, the Jesus who is holy and who's bringing judgment and who will destroy those who reject him. I must accept him as my Lord and Savior in order to receive the inheritance of the kingdom. I mean, you want something awesome in your life? You want to have something awesome that comes in the next life? You want that? The only way to get it is through the inheritance that God offers to us. Notice that the owner, verse 16 He 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 gave it says that he's gonna give the vineyard to others. And we look back on it, we know that he gave the vineyard to the Gentiles, he gave the vineyard to the church. That's not to say that a Jewish person can't become a follower of Jesus Christ. I know people who are ethnically Jewish who have become followers of Jesus Christ and recognizing him as their Messiah. It's not that a Jewish person can't become a follower of Christ. Of course they can. But it means that the, the primary way that God has been working in this world for the last 2000 years is not through the nation of Israel, but it's through the Gentile dominated church. I mean, Paul moved decidedly. You see this in the New Testament. The book of Galatians makes it super clear. And in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, he's on his mission, and he just comes to the point where his frustration level, which you can see starting with Jesus and and his, his gospel ministry, but then Paul's frustration level with synagogue leaders and preaching to the Jews finally gets him to the point where he says, you know what? From now on, we're going to the Gentiles. And then the whole shift of the rest, the balance of the New Testament, is about ministering to those who are gladly receiving the gospel and are willing to, to, to be faithful with what God's entrusted to them. That's the church. And so the inheritance is before us. It's, it's really the whole thing. It's everything we talk about. It's, it's eternity. It's, it's heaven. It's the abundant life now. It's the, I love this phrase, it's the pleasures of God forever. And so it's, it's the whole package of the good things, the awesome things that we spend our lives trying to go after and find. I want peace in my life. I, I, I want good things in my life. We spend a lifetime going after the pleasures of this life. We work so hard for it, for rest and, and, and for comfort and for, for, for good things to happen. And then we also spend a lifetime trying to run away and avoid and, and, and overcome all the hard things that happen. And the inheritance is both, I'm going to give you all of these things that you could never get on your own. And I'm going to take away all these other things that you've spent a lifetime trying to get away from. Things like, how many people are eager to get away from sin and temptation? Yeah, Anybody in that camp? Like, I mean, that's going to be gone. No more death. No more going to funerals and weeping over loved ones and standing with friends who lost their loved ones. No more pain. No more more pain at all. No more loss. No more separation. We worked so hard to get away from all of that, to, 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 to cover it over, to mask it, to try and pretend it didn't happen, to get over it. Jesus is going to take it away like that. It's part of the inheritance. Everything you've tried to avoid in life is going to be eradicated forever. If if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if not just a single decision, if your life is showing evidence, a pattern, fruitfulness, if your individual vineyard is actually producing fruit, that you can then offer back to the owner of the vineyard. If that's true for you, then you're gonna be received as sons and daughters of the king and you're gonna receive this mind-boggling inheritance that he's offering. And so far from needing to work hard to escape the mess of your life, God is offering it to you without prejudice by his grace. I mean, you can't earn it anyway. It doesn't matter how hard you'd work for it. You don't deserve it. It's provided by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the only thing you have to do to get it is agree that your way is not working. To repent. And to turn to Him in faith, simply saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is the only way of salvation, that He died for my sins, and He was resurrected on the third day to new life, and I want that. That's as simple as it is. And then you're written into the well, and you get the inheritance that He has for you. Now, I, I just... Now I know a lot of you have made that decision and so you're already there and and you know you're anticipating that inheritance. So live like it. But then there are others in the room who haven't made that decision yet and I'm like, why? Why wouldn't everybody want that? In fact, you do want it. You want these things to be gone and you want these things to be true of you. You just haven't found them in Jesus yet. You want the inheritance rather than notice the crushing judgment that awaits those who reject him. So the people react to the news that, the, that all of this, this vineyard's going to be given to others. They react to that part of it. They don't miss it. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. And they say, when they heard this, they said, surely not. God forbid. This can't be. What are you talking about? They understood that the vineyard represented what they treasured most of all, and that Jesus was saying it was in jeopardy of being given to others. They could not have conceived what we now know, looking into the rearview mirror of all of these centuries, that the temple would be destroyed some forty years later, that the Jewish people would be scattered for the next nineteen hundred years around the world. And that the church, largely made up of Gentiles, would be the means of God's work in the world. No one who was listening to the parable could have conceived of any of that. And yet that's exactly how God's plan has worked out. But verse 17, he looked directly at them. He looked at them straight in the eye. Have I got your attention, Jesus says? Listen to me what then is this that is written? And he goes right back to the Hebrew Bible. He's going to quote their scriptures back to them now to tell them that what he sings legit. And he quotes from Psalm 118 verse 22. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone is Jesus. The builders are the leaders of Israel and they've rejected him. And He's becoming the cornerstone, listen, of a brand new building. There's no mistaking, again, the messianic illusion in using Psalm 118. He's the one described here as the cornerstone. A little bit of a word on that and from various sources. I just kind of compiled this together, but a cornerstone is... A stone that forms the base of a corner of a building joining two walls. Uh, Largely ceremonial now, but before modern building practices, the stone was laid at the corner as the first of the foundation stones, also called the setting stone. Important since all other stones were then set in reference to this stone. That's important thus determining the position of the entire structure. And so we have cornerstones that kind of look like this, but in fact, the setting stone or the lead stone or the cornerstone, it would just be a regular stone. It would have looked like all the other stones, but it was so important because it was at the corner and it set the course for every other stone that was gonna be laid. So important if the structure is to be sound. I have some experience with this. I'm not a builder at all. I have no knowledge about some things. When I was 17 years old, I went on my first youth mission. We went down to the country of Haiti. We were in a mountain village and we were building a school. The thing was all set up for us. Uh, it was a, uh, a, a concrete block structure, um, steel framing around it, but these concrete walls had to be built. and, um, and uh, a lot of the jobs were just labor jobs. There were forty people on the team, and most of us were just hauling sand or hauling gravel or hauling water or hauling blocks to locations where people who were more skilled, not me, would be actually building the walls. Well, on this one particular day, my buddy Chris and I uh, we decided that we had had enough of hauling and we decided we're gonna build a wall. So they set us all up and we start building a wall in a given location and um, finished it up by the end of that day, and on the next morning, the foreman came over and demolished the wall. Because the lead stone, the setting stone, the first stone had not been set properly. Therefore, the entire wall was off. Therefore, it compromised the the structural integrity of the facility, of the building that we were putting together. Needless to say, for the rest of the mission, we didn't build any more walls. We hauled block and sand and gravel for the rest of our time there. I mean, this is the the critical stone that the leaders of Israel looked at and thought was just an ordinary stone and rejected it and cast it aside. And yet this stone is the one that joins everything together, the one who defines every part of it. Every other stone set in reference to this stone, the stone Jesus Christ. If the cornerstone is off, then the whole facility is off. If Jesus is not the lead corner in this church, then this church isn't worth anything. There's no integrity to it, there's no structure to it, it will crumble. If Jesus is not the lead stone, the lead corner, the setting stone in your life, if Jesus Christ is not the first stone that is set in your life, then please do not be surprised if your marriage is not great. If Jesus is not the lead stone, do not be surprised if your children don't like you very much and are rebellious and are moving out and away from your faith. Do not be surprised if Jesus is not the lead stone that your finances are in a shambles and you can't make sense of any of it. Do not be surprised if you do not have direction for your life, if you cannot find fulfillment, if you do not have joy, if Jesus is not the setting stone. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. God's judgment will fall on every person that fails to set Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of their life. Jesus Christ must be first if you expect to be aligned, to be true, to have integrity for the structure that is your life, to be something that brings praise and honor and glory to God. God made all, God owns all, God rules all. Is that true for you?